0: Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen.
1: The title of the book, Spangles, Elephants, Violets, and Me, The Circus, Inside Out. And the author is Victoria B. Christiani Rossi. And Victoria joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Victoria.
2: How are you today?
1: Well, this is a story of a time that is long gone by, I guess, about the circus, so absolutely. Tell us why you wrote the book.:
2: Well, I wrote the book kind of like um, uh, I had been estranged from my family for about thirty five years, and uh, it was uh, due to a lot of problems that happened uh, uh, when the Christianity Brothers Circus kind of folded. in in the early 1960s, and uh, there was a lot of, um, you know, uh, pointing fingers and everything, and my father being the love of my life had kind of rubbed off on me. I never got involved in any arguments per se myself, but uh, it all affected me in many ways, and so we just, you know, just didn't have much of a contact for 35 years other than a, a passing nod or whatever at funerals and uh so mo- a lot of my family are gone there's only uh three le- three uh uncle uh, one uncle left and uh one aunt at the present time everybody else has passed and um one day um i don't know i uh, being that i had such a uh my my convent uh, upbringing had such an impact in my life it had crossed my mind to write a story not a very long story, uh, about my convent life and upbringing and uh, the problems and how it impacted my life in such a negative way. And as I was uh, writing down notes, I just beginning to think more about my family missing them. I had just lost my father, and I had just lost my mother, and I was feeling a very, very strong need to reconnect with my family. And uh, I just really needed them at that time for some reason. And I all of a sudden picked up the phone and spoke to my Uncle Pete after 35 years of not speaking to him. And it was just uh, a true miracle that changed my life in the best way possible in his, too. And from then on, it kind of brought the family back together. And so I started reminiscing and thinking after that phone call. I thought, my goodness, you know, this family has been through so much. And I started thinking about my my convent life, and then I thought, well, I've got to think of a way to bring both of them together and bring about this remarkable story of my family that had such an incredible life um, uh, from early days in Europe, and uh, no one knew them better than I did. And uh, I just started writing, and just one thing evolved into another, and out came the book about seven, eight years later. Uh, I started writing notes actually on my living room floor with my adorable little dog at my side, and uh, it just evolved.
1: Now, and your yeah. parents and I guess grandparents were circus stars, international circus yes, they, stars.
2: Yes, they were. Yes, they were. They there have quite a history in Europe. They performed before kings and queens, and uh, King George V Fifth, sixth, uh, King George the and sixth. Excuse me. And, um, uh, they just had a remarkable history in Europe. They were, they were considered the royal family of the circus, actually.
1: Equestrian stars. Uh,
2: equestrian stars, yes. How
1: many horses yes. did they work with at the, one time?
2: Well, the, at one time, about five horses were in the ring. And, I, uh, what I would really like to make sure that the, uh, uh, listeners would, uh, maybe pull up my website, uh, it is spanglesvb.com. Uh, to pull up a very incredible uh, MGM video that was filmed uh, in Hollywood, California when my family were on hiatus from the Ringling Brothers Circus. And um, it is a, a remarkable film. Actually, it was called a, uh, MGM's Pete Smith Specialty because those specialties were, were just, sh- uh, all sh- or shorts was another name for them. They were only about 10 to 12 minutes long, but it was one of the most popular. Uh, shorts uh, in the history of Pete Smith's specialties uh, that went on uh, went 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 through the theaters, and it can also be uh, viewed through uh, by pulling up Christiani family video on YouTube, and uh, they will really uh, see a remarkable fo- footage of my family. It's uh, quite incredible. And in the background, a little bit of trivia: uh, my parents, uh, my grandparents, were very good friends with Charlie Chaplin over in Europe. Because uh, maybe many know, maybe don't know, that uh, Charlie Chaplin actually started his career in the circus in Europe. And so they were very good friends with my grandparents. And so when they were were due to uh, shoot this video in California, uh, Charlie Chaplin invited my grandparents to stay in the cottage behind his home. So they stayed there the whole shoot. And uh, through the, I think it was 10 to 14 days, they filmed uh, uh, the special. Uh, several uh, various stars came and visited the set, like Fred Astaire, Joseph Cotton, and, of course, Charlie Chaplin and many others of varied stature uh, uh, came to visit the set. And so it's kind of interesting, and I'm, I'm sure everybody would love to pull that up.
1: Well, that sounds fascinating. Now, yeah. you were, you were born 1940.
2: 1940
1: and just, just after they came to the United States.
2: Well, uh, the, my family came over to the United States in 1937, uh, and that, excuse me, 1934. My parents, uh, uh, met and married in California. And then I was born in 1940. My parents were. Uh, my family was still with Ringling, and um, I um, uh, was born at the Sarasota Memorial Hospital. and about ten days after my birth, uh, my family boarded the Ringling Brothers circus train and en route to Madison Square Garden in uh, New York City. So uh, my uh, background <laughs> started very early in age, in infancy.
1: And so, for those first few years, you were. With your parents on the circus train. On the
2: circus train. For, absolutely. For about
1: the first six years of your life.
2: Ab- absolutely. The first six years of my life was actually incredible, you know. Yeah.
1: It's like a, a fairy tale to most kids, right? A,
2: a fairy tale, absolutely a fairy tale. <laughs> Under and, the
1: big top, too. Yeah, We're and, talking about the
2: old-fashioned big the top. The old-fashioned big top, not the type uh, that you see with, uh, on the Big Apple Circus, which I love, and I love everybody there at the Big Apple, but I'm um, very friends with all of them. Uh, but the beautiful, kind, that's kind of tents are kind of peaked, and they look like the tents in the medieval, medieval times, you know. Uh, but I was raised with the old-fashioned big top. The old-fashioned, uh, with quarter poles and whatever, and, uh, and they were, uh, the quarter poles were raised by the elephants, and uh, uh, elephants help, helped uh, put up the big top and helped tear down and set up, actually. And it was an amazing to see that uh, beautiful city go up every day and down every evening onto the next town and railroad show.
1: Now, did you follow your parents' footsteps in in the Uh, circus?
2: I I did work in the circus, but only in the summer when I was uh, uh, not in school. And, of course, when I was very little, before school, I used to ride the floats and everything in the circus and sit on my family's bareback horses during the parade and the show, which they called Spec. And uh, uh, derived from the word spectacle and uh, so I enjoyed that but uh, other than that uh, I wasn't really very talented didn't uh, didn't really follow in my family's footsteps but one thing that I do give myself credit for and I thank God for that I was a very wonderful observer I observed everything from the inside out of the circus so I knew my family well I knew the ins and outs of the circus I knew the inevitable pressures that uh, brought about the changes in American society and the demographics uh, foretold in the decline uh, in under-canvas operations in the 1960s. The population centers uh, dispersed into suburbs and TV invaded the mind, and many traditional big-top circuses embarked on their final tours. So I cover all that period in the book, and it should be quite interesting. Uh, the circus, uh, uh, as we as I knew it, was a very, very important part of Americana, and certainly a part that uh, no one should wish to forget. It was well, a I remember. Band.
1: I can remember mm-hmm. well going to the circus in the '50s. Definitely, it's yeah. something you never forgot.
2: Exactly, and then of course, air conditioning came in, and the malls. And nobody wanted to sit for an hour and a half in a hot tent. You can't blame them. You know the <laughs> malls were a, were a, a wonderful uh, thing on the American scene. So people kind of flooded to the malls. <clears throat> everybody, every stratum of society, flooded to the malls, embarking uh, on their uh, uh, on on their trips to like they were going on a trip to the World's Fair. So uh, you know then the, the sales and everything. Everybody was caught up in the malls. I was not too. Right. We all were. But it kind of was the beginning of the demise of the old-fashioned tennis circus.
1: Now, tell us about your accident that kind of stopped your ended your career in the yes, circus. Yes, uh,
2: uh, the the uh, Christiani Brothers Circus was kind of um, on a on a downward uh, uh, track uh, when it played L.A. But uh, that was kind of a last-ditch effort to uh, to make up for what they had lost during that year and what year uh, is this? uh, This was 1959 and uh, a lot of uh, stars of stage and screen uh, attended this performance Lucille Ball was there, well they were there for 10 days and Lucille Ball was there with her two kids, Lucy and Desi and uh, at the time, I didn't realize it at the time, I do now that uh, Lucille Ball was uh, uh, getting a divorce from uh, her husband and uh, so the kids were there at the circus. We had James Garner was there, uh, Shecky Green uh um uh, a lot of stars. Let me see. There was uh, Cesar Romero. Just a whole lot of stars. Uh, I think uh, I remember seeing James Garner in the back uh, backyard, and I remember peeking through a hole in the dressing room tent, looking too embarrassed to come out. I was such a fan of his. Such a handsome Oklahoma charmer he was, and uh, he was uh, on, uh, had his, still his uh, his outfit on from Maverick. He was in that successful uh, western show, Maverick and he was i practically visited every day. And then uh, R- Ricky and David Nelson were there, never hardly missed a performance. They came early in the morning, didn't leave usually till late at night. Wonderful, wonderful young men, absolutely wonderful. And um, anyway, um, it was on opening night, uh, opening performance, excuse me, in the afternoon show, um, I was doing the act and the elephants um, uh, did a swirl. They each, uh, they did like a, a waltz. They called it the waltz. And so they were quite large. They were smaller when they were younger, but they had grown, grown into big fat sows at the time. And so they went to turn to spin. And if my legs weren't tucked in just right, I would get brushed by the elephant behind me. I was on the lead elephant. And it just so happened that that before the LA date, uh, uh, we had uh, new chain harnesses chrome beautiful chrome harnesses made for the elephants. but sadly, they forgot to to put the uh, leather straps so that I would have a good grip. So when I grabbed the elephant, my fingers got caught in the in the uh, chain, and when the elephant did the spin, I brushed against the other elephant, and my fingers got. Bloody crammed by the by the chain, and uh, thank God the elephant, through I tell you it was just a miracle she which they never do. she lowered her trunk on the next spin, and I was able to fly off of her because had I fell in the ring, I would have been trampled to death by the other elephants that came after it would have, that would have been the end of me, but thank God for some reason. She let me go. She lowered her trunk. I don't know, maybe some uncanny uh, thought of hers. And uh, I went flying outside the center ring. And uh, uh, luckily, too, another miracle is that I I landed in the midst of a whole uh, uh, slew of uh, flying act wire stakes. I just kind of melded in between them. Everybody said they couldn't believe it the way I was melded in between them. I could have got impaled, you know, by any one of them. And uh, so anyway, then I, I was more or less passed out after a, 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 about 30 seconds. Maybe I just passed out. And, I was, and, uh, and so I ended up with uh, seven breaks of my leg, and I ended up at St. Vincent's Hospital in, uh, in uh, L.A. And um, wonderful visitors of mine were David and Ricky Nelson. So uh, that was a wonderful. And there were some other stars that visited, too, when I was there. So I was there. Sadly, for the whole rest of the day, I wanted I wanted to enjoy it so bad, but I wasn't able to. And the show did actually tremendous uh, there in L. A. But they didn't take a uh, took a spiraling downturn on the way back to winter quarters. It was after L. A. Everything kind of fell apart. But the show in L. A. was fantastic, and uh, it was a wonderful run. But it just the luck didn't hold out after that.
1: So, the book covers about how many years of the circus?
2: Uh, the book cover uh, is actually a shot that happened in the year. I think they took that inside shot. Uh, well, let me see. Which uh, book cover do you have in front? The one with the, me on the elephant? Because there's right. two. Uh, okay, that's the one you have of me and the elephant. The other version, the new star version of Spangles. Has come out uh, in April 2009, and that has the Christian, a sketch of the Christiani family on the cover. That's the new Star version, which I would like for people to purchase if they're at all interested. The book cover that you have was the first version; it was the editor's choice version at iUniverse, and it has a, the picture itself was taken from a photograph uh, in in the year of 1959, uh, I believe, it was in Chicago. At Pampas, I mean, at the uh, Soldiers Field, it was taken the inside, and the rest was graphics. You know, graphic in.
1: You've gotten a lot of great reviews.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I'm so happy for that. I just hope that uh, I can, uh, you know, bring a part of that era to the readers. Um, It's just a wonderful era that people people should try and remember because, like I said, it is an important part of Americana. And I know everything has changed now. You know, the circus has. Has been suffering a lot of, uh, uh, you know, uh, problems with, uh, with, uh, uh, PETA and everything. And, um, but they are doing their best. They are so monitored now that it's very difficult, uh, uh, for anybody to escape. Although there are incidents, there are times when, uh, they're not able to catch everybody. And uh, as I said in my book, that uh, I believe that anyone working with animals, because I'm an animal lover, I have my family was animal lovers. Um, I just absolutely was grown up uh, uh, just loving animals. And uh, so I just believe that the animals, uh, trainers, and handlers should be monitored constantly. And uh, it's very hard. It's very difficult when you're on the road, when you're when you're moving from town to town. But it absolutely is essential. I don't care how professional, what kind of a background these people have, uh, working with animals. Uh, but you know, there are some people that have uh, uh, sadistic tendencies. And, um, uh, you know, you can't possibly catch everyone. It's not. Uh, it, it's just flatly not any more possible than catching everyone as it is to uh, catch your neighbor across the street kicking his dog behind closed doors. You know, it's going to happen one time or another. But I know that Ringling and all the other circuses are absolutely doing their best to catch everything in the bud.
1: Well, Victoria, so. tell us how to get your book.
2: <laughs> get my book. I think actually that the best uh, source is either through iUniverse or actually through Amazon.com. Amazon.com, and they can order the book through any of the uh, major uh, uh, bookstores, uh, and uh, this like Barnes and Noble, um, uh, uh, any kind of bookstores that uh, that throughout the country, they can order it. And I believe some of the bookstores are now carrying it. Some of them at Barnes & Noble are not carrying the book on the shelf. But they're, if it's not there, please order it through Amazon.com uh, or uh, Barnes & Noble or iUniverse.
1: Victoria, be sure
2: and pull up my website, SpanglesVB.com.
1: Uh, Spangles with an S.
2: Yeah, SpanglesVB.com, all, uh, all uh, lowercase.
1: Well, we appreciate you sharing your story with us about your book. It uh, certainly provides insight in what most people think of, the glamorous world of the circus. So thank you very much, Victoria.
2: I appreciate it so much, and I appreciate the opportunity to be able to publicize my book.
1: That was Victoria B. Christiani Rossi, Rossi. Yeah. And she is the author of her book, Spangles, Elephants, Violets, and Me, The Circus Inside Out.
0: You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages.
3: East Texas Meals on Wheels needs your help. For the first time in 35 years, Meals on Wheels has a waiting list for meals. Currently, we serve more than 3,500 meals per day. With the help of donors and volunteers, we can eliminate the waiting list and serve more meals and ensure all who need a hot, nutritious meal are served. You can call our offices, toll free at 1-800-451-2912 to find out more about how you can help. You can also visit our website at www.MealsOnWheelsEastTexas.org. Again, toll free at one 800 451 or visit us on the web at www.MealsOnWheelsEastTexas.org. After all, when a person needs a meal, they need it today, not tomorrow. Thank you for helping Meals on Wheels.
4: Saturdays on Togenet.com. It's Author Talk. Get the story behind the story on fiction and literature, graphic novels, horror, mystery and crime novels, romance, science fiction and fantasy, westerns, history, humor, inspiration, and every genre. It's all on Author Talk. You'll get to hear new authors talk about their books. Take the opportunity to hear insights on what inspired them to write it. It's called Author Talk on TogiNet.com. And it's presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their book around the world. Author House has assisted more than 30,000 authors, producing over 40,000 titles. Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen every Saturday on TogiNet.com. Radio with a cutting edge. Welcome back to
0: iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen.
1: The title of the book, Promises to Keep, The Untold Story of a Family Trapped in War-Torn Italy. And the author is Thomas Dwyer, and Thomas joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Thomas. Hi there. Well, a very intense book, I'm sure. Anytime you're dealing with war, as you state in your introduction, war is the ultimate obscenity.
5: That's correct. It certainly is.
1: And, of course, the corollary to that, I guess, is, as you say, it breeds obscenity.
5: Yes, history is replete with uh, the uh, obscenity's posterity, shall we say.
1: So we're going back to war-torn Italy, and this is literally your wife's family story. That's correct. So tell us why you wrote the book.
5: Well, I wrote the book, namely because it is a story of my wife's family, and and it's an intimate relationship, uh, and their ordeals as uh, refugees during World War II. Uh, I might have said before, I felt this story had to be told, and I'm probably the last person who's able to tell it because I'm the only one who has collected the the facts uh, regarding the specific incidents that occurred in this book. An analogy might be a fellow named uh, Harry Allingham. uh, I was reading the paper where he died recently at at the age of 113 in England, he was the oldest uh, living man, and he was asked the secret of his longevity, and he uh, responded that uh, he, he continued living so he could get the message out about the brutality of war and how obscene it, in fact, was.
1: So he had a real purpose.
5: Oh, yeah, a messianic zeal, I guess they'd call
1: it. Well, take us back. Uh, you start out uh, well before World War II. You start out, I guess, telling the story of the family. Is that it?
5: That's correct. So um,
1: tell us about the family.
5: Well, they uh, they lived in a, a rural farm in central Italy, about halfway between Rome and, and Naples. And they were a poor family. They eked out a living. And I, th- I believe my story starts in uh, 1910, where a uh, uh, young Italian farm boy named Domenico, Domenico Forte, was toiling away at the farm and and. Heard from some relatives in Beverly, Massachusetts, that there he could find work in a in a shoe factory. So he climbed aboard a boat and worked his way for passage. Came here, had some rather um, pessimistic experiences, and returned to Italy. Kind of like, uh, gosh, maybe that's not for me. Well, by 1914, he ended up as a machine gunner in World War I in the trenches of northern Italy in the, in the um, Trieste region. He was with a company of uh, soldiers who spearheaded the drive into a place called Vittorio Veneto and was captured, taken prisoner. He spent the balance of the war in, in, uh, in a prisoner of war camp. Uh, meanwhile, back at the farm, uh, his, uh, his wife and, and newborn son... Uh, waited patiently for him to return he did uh, to make a long story short he came back and then through for the next three or four decades spent most of his time moving back and forth to italy to, to try to find that pot at the end of the rainbow We're
1: uh, trying to find the better life
5: that's true that's correct
1: in fact that's the title of one of your uh chapters
5: yep that's right uh he he did uh he almost got them over here in 1935, but through some bad luck, change in immigration laws, uh, some procrastination and fumbling on his part, he wasn't able to do it. And worse, the, the world finally spun into a black hole. And As you know, World War II broke out in 1939 with uh, the invasion of Poland. Mussolini, of course, had aligned himself with Hitler and his family was trapped in Italy, which uh, just simply waiting for the scourge of war to come down the peninsula. So as how, did in 1943.
1: How old was he uh, at this time? He was
5: in his late 40s.
1: So the... I just can't even imagine, can you? I mean, can you... I don't think there's any way we can even begin to imagine the feeling, knowing what is about to occur, and yet not even can imagine... Even they couldn't imagine. Well, I guess he could, because he was had already gone to war. That's
5: true. His family, uh, well, at, at the beginning of the war, I mean, they felt relatively safe. After all, uh, North Africa was still in German and, and Axis-powered hands, which, of course, included uh, Mussolini's armies. And for all intents and purposes, the people in Italy felt pretty safe. But then in, within the space of one year, uh, North Africa fell, Sicily fell, and then and the Allies had landed at Salerno. And uh, war had reared its ugly head along a, a, a battle line called the Gustav Line. It was a German defensive position that stretched across the width of the Italian peninsula. And it was reinforced by uh, a general by the name of Kesselring. He was a, a famous chairman of, of World War II history. And it settled into a battle of attrition along that line. And right in the middle of that line... It was a town called Casino, along with an abbey at the top of the mountain called Monte Cassino. It was the home of St. Benedict. He was the founder of the Benedictine Order. It was a classic monastery.
1: And also along that line is the tiny community in which Domenico lived?
5: Well, directly behind it, it was a secondary line. It was called the Hitler Line, which in any event that uh, there should be some leakage at, at the Gustav Line, some failure along the line, um, the, the Hitler Line would take up new defensive positions to hold the uh, attacks back. Pico, unknowingly, was the focal point of that Hitler line, the secondary line of defense.
1: And this small community, really, uh, before this, is just the ideal community to live in, it sounds like.
5: Oh, very pastoral, yes. Oh, yes. I think I mentioned in the, early in the book, that the sheep wandered around without fences with a swab of paint on their hindquarters so everybody could know whose sheep it was and bring it back to them. <laughs> so it was a pretty undisciplined life.
1: And just everyone knowing each other and just the, you know, really the type of life that probably everyone wants.
5: Oh, well, uh, if it weren't for the... Okay, yes, in one sense, but central from central to southern Italy was relatively poor. Um, most of the wealth was controlled in the northern, like Milan and Genoa and Rome and places like that. Um, the fascists did a fairly good job of keeping those economies crunching along with military spending and what. But uh, as far as the people of Central, the farmers of Central and Southern Italy are concerned, uh, their life didn't change much.
1: So what kind of challenges did they face? What What is something that you'd like to share about the story that, is, you know, just extremely dramatic uh, or, or maybe just not so dramatic?
5: Well, uh, this is a typical, a typical scene in the book. When, and we're talking now about when the war actually arrived in Pico, which is about halfway through the book. The, uh, my mother-in-law, which was my, my, my wife's mother, of course. My wife is, uh, was an 8-year-old farm girl when this happened. My mother-in-law was out... Visiting her daughter at at her home, and the Americans began to bomb the area in Pico, and she was caught in the bombing raid. She, without going into a lot of detail, in the end she found herself running blindly, wildly through a hail of bombs, of which one of the concussions knocked her into a large crater, along with her kerchief, where she stayed there long enough to tie it on for some. Inane reason, and just as she was at the bottom of the crater, the shrapnel, pieces of metal and, and bombs, were all ricocheted across the top of the thing, the crater. So, in essence, her being in the crater saved her life. And the book is full of that kind of thing. That, that um, when you when the reader finishes, it, that he or she will wonder, well, how did these how did these people ever survive? And their story is a common story. What's unique about it is it's told from the voices of the people. War, World War II has been written about again and again. But, you know, from a political or military global perspective, but rarely from the point of view of the people who are caught in it. Uh, some notable exceptions, of course, are the of Van Frank and uh, I think Victor Frankl's book, uh, uh, Man's Search for Meaning, as I recall. Right. But... Um, Rarely is it told firsthand, up front, from, from the people who are defensively trapped in, in a, holoca- a, a holocaust of its own kind.
1: Well, you call it their intimate story of resilience.
5: Yes, resilience. Uh, they, they had this uncanny ability to find a way to keep their hearts beating. Um, they, they, uh, death was around the corner. I mean, there are people in the story who do get killed, and I guess how do I say it? That there, resilience, being the, 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 the innate flexibility, of finding a way to land on your feet, and these people did. And the book says in some ways how they did it. They lived in caves. They boiled grass. They buried food.
1: Well, it's a story of survival. I mean, it's, it's something, again, that it's very difficult to imagine f- for us in, in these times. But uh, I guess when you're faced with death, you're faced with un- such uh, diabolical uncertainty that uh, you'll go to just about any length to survive.
5: Yes, there are uh, some unimaginable things that they did. Uh, to, to survive, unimaginable. But the, and in the fact, they're so very real that sometimes the, the truth is difficult to understand. And in this case, uh, when I went back and collected all my thoughts and put the stuff on paper, I I started to say to myself, uh, no, people don't do this. It just doesn't happen this way. But uh, some of the things happened were, uh, were, uh, were, were, were skin-crawling. Right. But they worked and in that sense we're exceptionally clever
1: well of course when you think about this kind of experience you think about despair Uh, and there was despair everywhere I'm sure in everybody's minds and in their lives and every moment was that uncertainty of of injury death of not ever eating for a, you know, who knows how long you, you go between meals, or not meals, just bare food probably, right?
5: Yes, yes, and, and there are attendant, attendant ironies in this. Uh, after the battle had cleared, malaria spread across the, the peninsula, and then for reasons that are explained in the book. And uh, my wife, the little Maria, she's called in this story, contracted malaria. And While her mother was kneeling next to her bed, unable to do anything about it, she thought, How did we survive bombings, threat of rape, murder, pillage, looting, to have my daughter killed by a mosquito?
1: My goodness. And you described her mother, Maria.
5: Yeah, Maria Chivita, her name
1: Uh, just a person with strength and integrity that bonded the family together. She she had that kind of inner determination, I guess, and and I'm sure these people were of great faith in God.
5: Oh yes, oh yes. If you if you were Italian, you were Catholic in 1944. And there's there's some uh, there's some anecdotes in there attendant to that, both from the religious point of view and from um, the irony of some of the religious <laughs> events. Everyone doesn't have the same uh, level of faith, let's say.
1: But it's in events like this and experiences like this that faith is tested.
5: Oh, surely. Oh, surely. And, in fact, there are three or four instances that uh, occurred throughout the story that reinforced Burya Chibita's uh, uh, beliefs.
1: So through their faith... And other uh, characteristics, other uh, personality traits, they were able to keep hope alive.
5: Yes, and, and and in the process survive as a family. I hate to give away the ending, but
1: <laughs> well, there's nothing like having a, at least a a, a a positive ending after they've been through all of that. So they That's left. Tragic. So they left you an amazing legacy.
5: Literally, uh, it's the sort of thing that was not spoken of outside of the family. But when I married into the family, of course, I sat around the dinner table and played cards and heard all of the things that went on in World War II, and my jaw just dropped. I said, my God, i never knew any of this before. (laughs) I I was able to uh, go uh, to—actually, what I was told by the family was, like I said, anecdotal. It was their story. This guy did this, and these kind of people look like this, and they did that. And I had to find out, well, who are these people? So I I went—I had— Privileges at the stacks at, at UMass and Amherst. So I went through and found the actual military forces that were occurring, and the stuff dovetailed amazingly to the to the dot uh, to what they had told me, the timing, the events, what the soldiers looked like, uh, who they were, how long they stayed, what they did. I mean, there's there's some ugly stuff in here: rape, murder, pillage. It's, it's it's
1: the obscenity of war.
5: Yeah, it's, it's the kind of thing I, I made in my note. I said in my notes here that if this book makes us wonder about the possibility that war might someday scorch its path down the main streets of our hometowns, our hometowns, you know, Mainsville, USA, then it will have served its purpose.
1: Well, it, uh, it's that kind of story that needs to be told, but many times uh, we don't want to deal with the reality of the story.
5: Yeah, I think, and this is generalization, but most of the people in America, myself included, I come in a newspaper and hear about 20 people getting soldiers getting killed in Iraq and, and 2,000 civilians dying over three weeks from car bombings and what have you, and those are words on paper. They're not experiences. Yes, we have uh, hundreds of thousands of, of young men and women under arms, but... Since the burning of the White House in 1812, I'm sorry, Pearl Harbor in in 9 11, there's little evidence of us, us being Americans, knowing the full impact, I mean, the full total impact of of war on a community, on a people, on individuals. No, I'm not criticizing. We're lucky, thank God. It's just not there.
1: Well, Thomas, tell us how to get your book.
5: Well, it's, uh, I have a, what do you call it? uh, Website? Website, right. Uh, it's it's tomsbook.net, and there's um, some, an excerpt there available. There's also a how-to-buy click button that tells you about the book and where you can get it. Uh, it's available, of course, at iUniverse uh, on uh, www.iUniverse.com, and it's uh, they have a phone number if you want to buy it by that way. It's, it's 1-800-AUTHORS. If anyone so likes, they can be available at uh, Barnes & Noble,
1: it can be ordered through any of those uh, bookstores uh, yeah, or online bookstores.
5: Yeah, and I expect since it's in books and print that it's available in any, any local bookstore. The people who I've spoken to have told me that they've been, uh, when they order it, they've been getting it in anywhere from two to three days. So that's, uh, that's, uh, that's
1: nice. Fantastic. Well, we appreciate you sharing your story, Thomas.
5: Well, thanks for, thanks, thanks for letting me here, Steve.
1: That was Thomas Dwyer. He is the author of his book. Promises to Keep, the untold story of a family trapped in war-torn Italy.
0: You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back
4: right after these messages. He's a diehard American. He's right, and he has the last name to prove it. He's Jason Wright, the host of The Right Side of the Aisle on TogiNet Radio. Jason is a father and self-made entrepreneur who turned a struggling East Texas real estate firm into a top-notch million-dollar company. Jason Wright loves America and is very concerned about where we are headed as a nation. He's dedicated to traditional American values. Jason Wright. Join us every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern for The Right Side of the Aisle on TogiNet.com. Maybe if I write a book, it will be the thing that keeps me alive. Those are the troubled words of a new 16 year old author with her first thought provoking book, What Gives? Published by Togi Entertainment. The author kept a diary during her dark teenage times, which turned into a 360 page suicide note with a happy ending. Texas Monthly describes teen author Chelsea Marie and her new book, What Gives? in this provocative way. We've plunged from page to page, not because of the young diarist's despondency. Depression is not especially attractive or compelling but because we are fascinated to see that while she is fending off demons on one hand, she is writing verse with the other. What Gives is available at whatgivesbook.com and national bookstores. Readers of What Gives are giving rave reviews. All social scientists, teachers, and students should use this book as a learning tool. What Gives is available at whatgivesbook.com and national bookstores.
0: Welcome back. To iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen.
1: The title of the book, Naked Escape, and the author is Maureen Perella. And Maureen joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Maureen. Hello. Good to have you here to talk about your book, Naked Escape. And if I may just share your very uh, short statement about the book, a futuristic, intense, political thriller with spiritual overtones. Well, that is obviously a mouthful, and and I'm sure this book takes us down many paths and a lot of twists and turns with all the things that are going on today in the world, but why did you write this book?
6: Well, the book was primarily the brainchild of my father, Frank Alfred Perella, Sr., who used his expertise from many years' experience as a foreign intelligence officer. Um, And then when he passed on, uh, he left the manuscripts to me, and he was motivated to find a global answer to nuclear disarmament. So I wanted to bring forth that in the book, and he instilled in me a love for writing. So what I did was I edited, I updated, and I added to the book, And I believe it was his wish and my wish to become a published author and share his views nationally. Unfortunately, his wish did not come true until he passed on from this life into the next. And uh, myself, as an experienced counselor, I was also motivated by a desire to encourage, exhort, and to spread the message of wisdom and peace.
1: And you put it in today's setting. Obviously, your father was writing at a time Around World War Two or post-World War Two, correct?
6: Right. I put it in today's setting because I felt like it would be more pertinent and salient for today.
1: So it starts out in the year 2007?
6: Right, and then it goes beyond that, and it makes frequent references to history. And, you know, like you said, my father, Frank Alfred Perella, he originally had the setting as post-World War II, uh Vietnam era, but... um because he lived through the World War II and he was he fought in World War II, and he used his experiences to write the book. And uh, what I did was I took the liberty to update the events and the timing to make it more appealing and uh, for today.
1: Now you talk about in this book also doomsday prophecies of the way it leads off. We're talking about mandated vaccinations. Boy, that sounds like today. Right. With all that's going on with the swine flu, and you hear all the talk about the government getting involved to make sure we all get vaccinated against this uh, pandemic, which, uh, you know, who knows? I certainly don't want that to happen. And, and, and yet this is, this is the real world. And so you put this in a real world setting. Right. Take us, take us down the road. Uh, take us uh, into the lives of the characters. Now, Ambrose, is that he's the main character?
6: Right, Ambrose Servant.
1: Tell us about Ambrose.
6: Ambrose is the main character, and he is, uh, well, left to the imagination of the reader. Uh, he could be interpreted as a self appointed liberator with a messianic complex. Um, he's a liberate, college
1: professor, right?
6: He's a college professor, yes, but he has a quest for peace. And his search for peace is the general and persistent theme of the novel. And uh, he, can, some people may consider him a liberator with a messianic complex or a visionary deserving of pity, which I believe is a marked departure from anything that has been done in the past in that also it brings to mind questions in the reader's mind, it causes questions to surface that may already be in the reader's mind concerning what's going on in the political arena today.
1: Now, who are his allies?
6: He has, well, his wife is his biggest supporter. He's mainly on his own. He has friends in uh, the academic environment, college. However, they all shun him because of his views. He has views that are very controversial, and some people might think that he could even be disloyal to the United States, but that's not the case. Um, His adversary, of course, is Dr. Hintraub, who represents deception and is trying to control the the global political environment. And um, Ambrose represents integrity and freedom. Um, there are other characters, too, but they're minor, and they just serve to uh, bring forth other lessons So
1: what are the two political themes uh, the opposing themes or the you know uh, control against freedom or liberal against conservative how did you right. how did you put that what kind of setting did you uh, establish
6: well it's the the age old struggle of good versus evil um, Doctor Contrab represents evil and control, and Mr. Servant represents godliness and freedom. And there's another theme, which is larger than the man versus nature or man versus God, and that is humanity destroying itself and at the same time trying to save itself before it's too late. And and hence that is why Ambrose Servant is trying to. Uh, there's a race for peace before, before the world uses the nuclear bombs to <laughs> destroy us.
1: And one of the questions that you want the reader to take away from your book is, are you ready for the end times? You want the reader to be thinking about that as they read?
6: Right. That be ready for the end times because we don't know what tomorrow brings. And are you ready? Another lesson is that if you walk with God, that God will take care of his people. But mainly to be sober-minded, for the time is short here, and we need to be very vigilant about what is going on in the political environment and globally and how things are moving along to possibly a one-world government.
1: And you also talk uh, about a warning, don't be fooled by appearances.
6: Right, appearances are deceiving. That's that's,
1: that's, uh, a a deception in the story.
6: It is. And that was the main thing my father always said, appearances are deceiving. And it's true. Um, People reap what they sow, and they voted Dr. Kentrob into office because he had all this charisma.
1: And what, and what office was he voted into?
6: Well, he was Secretary of State, and then he rose as if with celebrity status to become the President of the United States. And he was pretty much warring against Ambrose's servant and Ambrose's cause, even though he appeared that he was his ally. But that wasn't the case.
1: Well, you talk about some, uh, there's some scenes like, well, exactly, this could be a movie, right?
6: Oh, yes, and I do want to make it a movie so that it could touch many more lives.
1: So the scenes, uh, give, us, give us a couple of scenes that kind of, uh, you know, give us a glimpse of this, this uh, confrontation going on throughout the story between right. good and evil.
6: Well, there is one scene, which would be a good uh, movie trailer, uh, with Dr. Kentrop, who is the Antichrist figure, who's speaking at the Gator Bowl during halftime, introducing the military, and then on stage, shots ring out and he falls. And then, you know, without giving too much of the storyline away, he just appears like the Messiah Mm. of how he how he falls, and then how he... It's a miracle that, you know, he's okay. And then another teaser scene is Ambrose near the college campus when he first meets Kentrob, and he's getting into his car, and the car blows up, and there's a car bomb, and Kentrob is looking on, smiling. That was kind of hinting of the evil, <laughs> the evil intent. Um... Another teaser scene is um basically um his friend Matthew is an alcoholic and he's also not does not believe the word of God, and um his addictions are eventually gonna destroy him, so that's another way that man can destroy himself <laughs> um.
1: so there's a uh timeless moral lesson that you want to. Is that you are espousing in your book.
6: Right. There's several more lessons, yes. Another one is you can't take um, your material things with you. You know, naked we come into this world, naked we leave. The only thing that stays is our our good works and what we do for uh, God's kingdom.
1: Now, after reading what your father had written, of uh, when did you, and, you know, and of course all the things that are going on in in the world, and of and of course today it's at such an accelerated pace of, of all the things that are going on. Nobody can keep up with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, was was there a specific event or an experience you had that all of a sudden you said, you know, I've got to write this?
6: Well, my dad really set the scene for the whole book, and he did a wonderful job, and I just filled it in and updated it for today. For example, the vaccinations and example uh terrorist attacks that you know are similar to what's been going on in the world these last couple decades
1: so there is a terrorist uh theme running through the book as well
6: oh yes absolutely
1: and and some events that are startling
6: yes and it's serves as a warning for us to be vigilant um
1: well that's a tough word, isn't it? <laughs> Nobody likes to hear that. that that kind of when you hear that word, you kind of get that feeling it kind of goes up your spine, you know yeah, you, you go, boy, can I be vigilant yes
6: and um
1: I'm just a regular guy you know <laughs> how can I be vigilant but uh, you know Ambrose is a regular guy, right? Yes,
6: Ambrose is just a regular guy I mean, he's, he's a, a smart professor. he's a smart
1: guy, you know he's a smart guy, and some people think well, I'm not smart enough to do anything but uh, you know, regular people can make a big difference. And is that part of your book?
6: Yes, it is. It's, you know, that, yes, everything that we do counts. And even though there's, you know, prophecies of what's going to be going on, that, that we need to walk in the right way and that will make a difference. And we can make a difference just by um, helping people. And in our quest for peace, but at the same time, not um, disabling our country to where, you know, our military is weak.
1: Does the military become weak in your book?
6: No, it doesn't. It's always strong. There's a theme of theocracy and limited government control. And uh, that's what Ambrose, the main character, espouses to. And some would say that uh, the book is a current assessment of where the world may be leading to in the political arena and the current events that are going on today. So basically, another lesson is don't be lulled into what into believing what everybody tells you um, that appearances are deceiving.
1: So how does Ambrose stay focused on, you know, the, the truth?
6: Um... It's funny you mention that, the truth. He focuses on the Word of God and references to Bible verses of where, you know, it says in, in the Word that we will be persecuted for our views. And that's what is happening to him, just like it did to the Lord when he was on this earth. And we're not, you know, we were supposed to be walking like him.
1: So, does your book, uh, the, without giving away the ending, do you think your book is reality in the making?
6: I really do. I mean, uh, there is an unexpected twist at the end of my book, and I don't want to give it away. No,
1: you don't have to. <laughs>
6: <laughs> but you know, like I said, you know, the, I, I believe that the title of the book is very apropos to to what what the book means, make it escape. And there's a literary reference also in the forward of the book that speaks to the title. And and yeah, I believe that the world is moving toward the direction where we need to be very aware about what's going on in the world and look at the uh, spiritual side of, of the world.
1: Everything that we hear and see, make sure we test it against uh, eternal principles then,
6: yes, that's a very good statement. You know you have to test the spirits to see that they are of God, basically is what it says in in the Bible, right, so test things to make sure that they're true
1: well, Maureen, it sounds like a fascinating thought provoking uh soul stirring book, so congratulations
6: oh, thank you. It was a pleasure writing it and i hope that it touches many lives
1: well, how do we get your book
6: um go to it will be in the bookstores it's already online it's at barnesandnoble.com and you just type in naked escape but the main way to get it is to go to my publisher's website which is iuniverse.com the letter i and then universe.com all one word and click on Bookstore, and then put in my title, and then you can order a soft copy or a hard copy.
1: Well, we appreciate you being on iUniverse Radio. Thank you.
6: Oh, thank you very much.
1: That was Maureen Perella. She is the author of her book, Naked Escape. You can order the book, Naked Escape, by calling 800-288-4677, extension